0: This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention.
1: Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Sarah Kidd, a medical epidemiologist at CDC. We'll be discussing the epidemiology and surveillance of acute flaccid myelitis and its relationship with enterovirus D68. Welcome, Dr. Kidd.
0: Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with what is
1: acute flaccid myelitis, or AFM.
0: Right. So acute flaccid myelitis, or AFM for short, uh, is a uncommon but serious neurologic condition that most often seems to occur after a viral upper respiratory infection. Um, AFM affects the area of the spinal cord called the gray matter of the of the spinal cord. And this causes the sudden onset of muscle weakness and loss of reflexes, um, usually in the arms or legs, but it can also cause neck weakness or facial weakness um, or even weakness of the muscles needed for breathing. Uh, it can lead to permanent weakness and, and paralysis in people who are affected. Is it isn't related to polio? Well, it's interesting, uh, poliomyelitis literally means disease of the gray matter, which is referring to the gray matter of the spinal cord. Um, but historically we've used the term poliomyelitis to refer to this specific pr- paralytic disease caused by the, by the polio virus. Um, poliomyelitis caused by the polio virus doesn't occur in the United States anymore. Polio virus has been eradicated in the United States thanks to the vaccine. Um, but and CDC also tests AFM cases for poliovirus, and none have been positive. So we know that AFM is not caused by the poliovirus. Uh, the term AFM was adopted to distinguish it from the disease caused by the poliovirus.
1: Uh, does it affect any particular age group more than others?
0: Yes, uh, AFM primarily affects children, but it can affect adults as well. The average age of people affected is five years, and about 94 or 95 percent of people affected are less than 18 years old. When did it first emerge? CDC first began tracking AFM nationally in 2014 after clusters of cases were reported from California and Colorado. Since then, we've observed peaks in cases every two years, so peaks in 2014 in 2016 and again in 2018. Um, But when we look back before 2014 at medical records in hospitals, um, we do recognize that we did see AFM before 2014, but cases were much more sporadic and in lower numbers. So we don't believe AFM is a brand new condition. However, it seems like something changed either in or shortly before 2014 to cause these new peaks every other year. And this suggests to us that there's either a new or emerging cause of AFM.
1: Science seems to have moved pretty rapidly on AFM. Uh, Do we know about what exactly is causing
0: it? Well, we do know that multiple viruses can cause an AFM-like picture in a small percentage of people infected. These viruses include the West Nile virus and also certain types of enteroviruses like Coxsackie viruses. We also know that more than 90% of children with AFM had an upper respiratory infection consistent with a viral infection in the days before they developed AFM symptoms. So this all points to a viral or um, maybe a post-viral cause. Unfortunately, though, it's rare to identify a virus in the cerebral spinal fluid or CSF of children with AFM. So it's been difficult to definitively say what's causing each case. How is enterovirus
1: D68 involved then?
0: Um, We usually don't find a virus in the CSF or cerebral spinal fluid. The virus called enterovirus D68 or EVD68 is the virus most commonly identified in children with ASM, and it's usually from a respiratory specimen, so from the nose or throat. And in addition, a a growing amount of recent laboratory research has provided additional evidence that enteroviruses, and especially EBD-68, plays a role in ASM. I want to emphasize, though, that EBD-68 is a very common virus, and... Most people who have it will not develop AFM. We need to know more about how this virus might cause AFM and why some people develop AFM and some do not. And then I also, it's also important to keep in mind that we know that other viruses cause AFM as well. Um, but it's looking more and more likely that EBD-68 is uh, primarily responsible for the AFM teaks every two years.
1: Uh, and as you just said, it, it only seems to increase in severity every other year or every two years. That's very strange. Do we know why this is?
0: This is one of those uh, intriguing questions that we'd like to know the answer to um, for sure. It, it's likely that trends in AFM are caused by patterns of virus circulating in the community. And this is um, at least partially depends on the proportion of the population that's immune or susceptible to the virus. So, you know, one theory is that EBD-68 is such a common virus that population immunity is so high that it prevents wide circulation one year, and then the following year, the number of unexposed susceptible people has increased as children are born each year, and it reaches a critical threshold every two years where the virus has an you know there's enough susceptible people where it can circulate in the population. Uh, but this is just conjecture right now. Uh, we're definitely continuing to track AFM patterns and to learn more about them both in the United States and worldwide.
1: 2020 sadly corresponding with COVID-19 pandemic is supposed to be a peak year for AFM and uh, apparently late summer early fall has been historically when most cases appear. Has that happened as expected this year?
0: Actually, no. Uh, Based on the previous patterns, we certainly thought that 2020 was going to be another peak year for AFM, but so far we haven't seen an increase in AFM cases or case reports this year. Um, We certainly are remaining vigilant and are prepared to respond if there is an increase in cases. Uh, Do we have any guess um, why this is? We don't know for sure, but it certainly seems like um, the precautions taken to prevent COVID 19, uh, like social distancing and people wearing masks and hand washing, have decreased the circulation of other respiratory viruses, not just COVID. Um, and so this probably applies to enteroviruses as well.
1: Okay, so if remote learning, mask wearing, and physical distancing have offered possibly protection, uh, do you anticipate a surge next year if those three actions are no longer being employed?
0: Uh, I really wish I knew the answer to that question. A lot of people, that's the million dollar question that a lot of people are asking. Uh, there are a lot of variables, right? Uh, human behavior, whether schools reopen, and what happens next summer and fall. Uh, But that said, I I don't want to predict anything, but I certainly do think we need to be prepared for a possible surge in cases next year. Uh, So
1: going back a little bit, following these peak years, 2014, 16, 18, um, what what were the case numbers?
0: So uh, surveillance started in 2014, so in the middle of the year. Um, uh, So that's sort of an incomplete year, but... We have a total of 120 confirmed cases in 2014, a total of 153 confirmed cases in 2016, and then 2018 was our biggest year yet. There were 238 total confirmed cases in that year. So far in 2020, as of uh, the end of September, there have been 22 confirmed cases. So, we're lower. We're we're. Uh, lower than we would expect for a peak year, for sure.
1: Okay. That, yeah, that's a dramatic drop. That's, that's nice. Um, how has the tracking of this disease been done? How are surveillance and epidemiology used together?
0: Yeah, it, uh, national surveillance for AFM started in 2014, uh, and we received reports of possible cases through state and local health departments. So along with these reports, we receive parts of the medical records and copies of the brain and spine MRI images as well. And then these records are reviewed with a group of expert neurologists to classify cases so that we can track trends in cases over time. At the same time, specimens from children with possible AFM are sent to our AFM laboratory here at CDC. And these are tested to look for viruses and possible causes. In addition to those surveillance activities, we also work with clinicians and health departments to investigate and gather information about children with AFM. And we use this clinical laboratory data to help um, learn more about the disease and to look for possible risk factors and causes of AFM and and to learn why some people get get AFM and some don't.
1: Uh, What are the challenges with finding the cause? I kind of alluded
0: to it before, but it is unusual to find a virus in the spinal fluid in children with AFM. And this may be because the body has already cleared the virus by the time the spinal tap is done, or it could also be because the virus is basically hiding in tissues that make it difficult to detect in the spinal fluid. Um, It's more common to find a virus in respiratory samples from the nose or throat, but sometimes these types of samples aren't collected at all or are collected too late um, in the course of disease to detect a virus. So, for this reason, we really tried to get the message out about the importance of collecting these specimens as soon as possible when a child has symptoms of AFM. Researchers are also looking at other types of tests like Um, looking for antibodies to a virus in the CSF instead of the virus itself to look for possible causes of AFM.
1: And CDC is not going this alone. Um, Who's partnering with us to find out more about it?
0: Oh, for sure. Um, We have many partners and collaborate with partners at the National Institutes of Health, clinical and research partners through the AFM Task Force and acute flaccid myelitis working Group. And also organizations like the Siegel Rare Neuroimmune Association, or SRNA, and ASM parent work groups. Uh, so ASM parent groups um, have been really helpful in helping us get the word out about AFM.
1: Okay, so what's the ultimate goal of these partnerships?
0: These partnerships have really strengthened the ASM network and advanced our understanding of AFM both through research and through communications to increase awareness about AFM among both the medical community and among parents and the general population. Of course, the ultimate goal of these partnerships is that we hope this increased knowledge will ultimately lead to the development of diagnostic tests, effective treatments, and ways to prevent AFM completely in the future. And
1: uh, is the timeliness of diagnosis important? I know you said um, the timeliness of getting the spinal tap could be important, but is just general timeliness of diagnosis important? Does it make a difference?
0: Well, ASM can progress very quickly uh, over days or even hours, and it can lead to respiratory failure. So it's very important to recognize the signs and symptoms of possible AFM as early as possible. Uh, About half of children with AFM will need to be admitted to the ICU or intensive care unit, and about a quarter will need a ventilator to help them breathe at some point during their hospitalization. So it's it's important to recognize AFM early so that these children can be hospitalized and monitored and also evaluated for AFM and other similar conditions um, and to provide the best management for each patient. Are there any treatments? Right now, unfortunately, there's no specific treatment for AFM. Um, clinicians may recommend certain interventions on a case-by-case basis, and the most common treatments given are intravenous gamma globulin or IVIG and steroid. AFM can look similar to other neurologic conditions which do have specific treatment, so it's important to consult with specialists to help distinguish ASM from these other conditions and to guide therapy. I also want to note that we do know that physical and occupational therapy helps with the weakness and mobility, and it's important to initiate rehabilitation early to have the best outcome. Many children continue to have improvements with long-term physical therapy as well, even over the course of months or even years, they've continued to make incremental improvements. So, rehabilitation is also a key, key part of treatment.
1: What clinical and public health actions can be taken to help protect these patients?
0: Right now, we don't have a way to prevent AFM altogether, but we do know that clinical and public health actions can have an impact on patient care and, and outcomes. For this reason, a key part of our preparedness activities have really focused on key communications to increase clinician and public awareness of AFM to lead to more rapid recognition of AFM. Uh, we've been conducting intensive outreach this summer, especially for frontline clinicians like emergency room and urgent care clinicians who are most likely to be the first ones to see patients with limb weakness and be the ones who will recognize AFM and get them care. Um, I I also want to make clinicians aware of some other AFM resources on the CDC website and also the SRNA or Siegel Rare Neuroimmune Association website. Um, Specifically, there's a physician consult portal where clinicians can enter some information and request consultation with an AFM expert if they'd like to discuss a specific patient with an expert. Uh, I spoke earlier about the importance of consulting with specialists, and, and this is a great resource. You can find it by Googling um, AFM Physician Portal, and it will lead you right to the SRNA website.
1: That's great to know. That's really helpful. Um, uh, so for parents, I know it's it's very worrisome, and it's um, a really important question. Right now, other than masks and social distancing what can parents do to protect their children theres is there anything and 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 you mentioned earlier that it was um, important for parents to get the message about this um, to what end if if there isn't um, if it can't be prevented
0: right I think it 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 can be um, really distressing for parents to feel like um, there's not not much to do. And, and there isn't a specific action to take to prevent ASM. However, we do recommend, of course, just um, the, the general practices that we've been hearing a lot about recently that can decrease the risk of getting viral infections in general. And these include frequent hand washing with soap and water, avoiding touching your face, and avoiding close contact with people who are sick. But I think the most important thing that I'd like parents to be aware of is if your child develops sudden weakness, especially after a recent viral infection, to seek care right away. Um, Even in a setting of COVID, AFM is an emergency and needs to be evaluated.
1: What would you like to see as the next step taken on the path to stopping AFM?
0: Uh, That's a a big question. Uh, As much as we've learned in the last few years, there's still much more to learn and understand about this disease. We we do need to know why some children develop ASM after a viral infection and and why some don't and most don't. Um, If we understood this and then we could identify people who were most at risk for ASM, this would help us develop preventions, but also would help us target prevention efforts for people who needed it the most. And then on the other end of the spectrum, For children who develop AFM or or already have AFM, we are learning more all the time about treatments, rehabilitation, and outcomes. It's important to keep gathering information on these so that we can help children with AFM have the best outcomes and recovery possible. Tell us about your job at
1: CDC, what you do and what you enjoy most about it. (laughs)
0: I'm a a medical officer and medical epidemiologist on the AFM team at CDC. I'm trained as a pediatrician, so I really enjoy working on an important topic related to children and their parents. In my position, I help set up systems and projects to collect data and then analyze and translate that data into useful clinical and public health information about AFM, and these include surveillance projects, special studies, and I also um, work closely with researchers in our laboratory. Um, I also work with our communications team to help get the word out about AFM. So I work with a, a lot of amazing and smart people, and I really enjoy collaborate, collaborating with them and learning from them every day. Are
1: you still working remotely like most of us at CDC? Um, what do you do for fun and relaxation in Atlanta?
0: Yep. I think like most people, I've been working remotely for over six months now. Hard to believe it's been that long. Um, for for fun, now that the weather has cooled off and is beautiful here in Atlanta, I've definitely been spending more time outside, working in my yard, and running longer distances again. Um, but I'm not too proud to admit that one of my main sources or modes of relaxation is streaming TV shows on Netflix, although I think I'm starting to run out on uh, run out of good options there. I, I definitely love the series The Good Place, especially the first season, and I just finished up the last season of that, so I'm looking for recommendations of what to watch next.
1: <laughs> That's so funny. I don't have a TV, and I've never watched TV, and I don't watch TV shows literally. I mean, I don't know when the last time was, 15 years or something, and but I've gotten to a binge thing for a while where I was, um, uh, yeah, streaming, And but BritBox, BritBox and Acorn, British Murder Mysteries, that's my uh, yeah. drug. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Kidd. Thank you. It was fun. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the October 2020 online report, Enterovirus D68 Associated Acute Flaccid Myelitis, United States 2020. Online at cdc.gov EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases.
0: For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.